Chapter twenty eight, section four of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, part two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Penfold. The Student's Roman Empire, part two, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter twenty eight. The Principate of Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180 A.D. Section 4. The Marcomannic War. Since the Dacian conquest of Trajan, the Danube lands had enjoyed a long period of peace. The menaces of danger which had appeared at the opening of Hadrian's reign had been happily averted, and the chief nations on that frontier, the Roxolani in the east, the Jazyges in the strip of land between Dacia and Pannonia, the Marcomanni in Bohemia, the Quadi in Moravia, all acknowledged more or less the sovereignty of Rome and did not trouble her with hostilities. The Quadi had asked Pius to confirm the election of a new prince, but after the death of Pius a change came over the scene, and Marcus soon found himself involved in a great war with these frontier nations, generally known as the Marcomannic War. For this war the Romans were not to blame. The policy of Antoninus Pius had been essentially one of peace, and Marcus was not a man to provoke enemies nor yet was it due to the spontaneous rapacity or restlessness of the neighboring barbarian peoples. The cause came from a strange quarter, quite beyond the limits of Roman politics. Shiftings took place among the German folks of central and northern Europe, on the Elbe and the Vistula, and these migratory movements induced pressure on the Marcomanni, Quadi, Buri, and other southern nations, who in turn pressed upon Roman territory. The empire resisted their pressure, and the consequence was a serious war of thirteen years, which may be regarded as an early prelude of those historic events which took place two or three centuries later, known as the Wandering of the Nations. The first incident which declared the new danger and occasioned the war was the appearance of a large number of Germans in Pannonia, seeking new abodes there. This multitude consisted of Langobardi, or Lombards, from the distant Elbe, their first appearance in the south, as well as of Marcomanni and others. But they were promptly driven back across the Danube, and then they sent as ambassador Balamar, king of the Marcomanni, and ten others, representing ten tribes, to Aelius Bassus, governor of Pannonia, asking for an assignment of territory. But the request was not granted, and they had to return." The migrations already mentioned seem to have produced some pressure westward as well as southward, for in Upper Germany we find the governor, Gaius Aufidius Victorinus, the father-in-law of Fronto, compelled to take the field against the Chatti who had attacked the province. The outbreak of the war in the east hindered Marcus from taking adequate measures to avert the dangers which, as it was easy to see, threatened the Danube provinces. It was at least lucky that the first great blow was not struck until Roman arms had been successful against the Parthians. It was probably about the time of the triumph of Marcus and Verus, 166 AD, that a great though loose coalition of German tribes, Marcomanni, Quadi, Harmanduri, and others, burst into the empire and overran Dacia, Pannonia, Raetia, and Noricum. The Jazyges took part in this eruption, but the Sarmatian tribes to the east of Dacia were not implicated. In Dacia the town of Albernus, Verus Patuk, was burnt down, and Sarmizagathusa itself was threatened. 
but the danger came far nearer to the heart of the empire and made rome herself tremble since the day when the cimbri and teutons had been repelled by marius on the field of versailles no barbarian enemy had ever carried arms into italy but now they swooped down from Raetia to destroy apaturgium oderzo and crossed the julian alps to lay siege to aquileia of the measures which were taken to check the incursions by the commanders on the spot we only know that furious victorinus was defeated and slain the invasion took place at an awkward moment for the government the parthian war was over but the plague which it had brought in its train had made fearful havoc in italy and famine the usual companion of pestilence also set in people were unable to pay the dues to the state and the emperors had not money to meet the expenses of the war marcus was compelled to sell by auction the imperial jewels in order to provide immediate funds new troops had to be raised and measures had to be taken for the defense of the chief cities which lay in the path of the invaders or tempted their progress the walls of salone in dalmatia and those of philippopolis in thrace were restored two new legions were created two paia and three concordia and assigned to the defense of Raetia and noricum where a new frontier camp was established at loriacum lorch near the mouth of the ends as well as a large number of small forts the troops in noricum and pannonia were supported by the danube fleet which had its chief stations at loriacum and carnuntum marcus although not a soldier was obliged to undertake the irksome task of directing in person the operations of the war the matter could not be left to the several commanders of the provinces the general control of one supreme commander was required and this duty could not be safely consigned to the frivolous and incompetent verus the two emperors left rome and reached aquileia one sixty eight a d their advance frightened the invaders who had no idea of acting together and immediately began to retreat the quadi offered submission and begged for terms but the marcomanni held out it was clearly premature to make peace until the barbarians had been taught a lesson although the younger emperor eager to return to rome wished to consider the danger as past but the devastations which the invaders had wrought could not be atoned for so easily they had carried off enormous numbers of roman captives the quadi it is said over sixty thousand the jazyges one hundred thousand marcus saw the importance of teaching the barbarians a lesson and prosecuted the war with vigor unfortunately we have no precise record of his movements he made peace with the quadi on condition of their giving back the captives and confirmed the election of a new king furtius he proceeded to the pannonian frontier and seems to have made carnuntum his headquarters in the meantime his son-in-law tiberius claudius pompeianus was appointed commander in Raetia and noricum and with the help of his lieutenant p helvius pertinax who at a later period became emperor cleared these lands of their invaders who in Raetia at least were probably the chatti some of the barbarians it is worth noting were seduced by roman pay into fighting in roman service against their fellow barbarians by this policy the war was soon practically reduced to a war against the marcomanni and jazyges the emperor returned to rome in one sixty nine a d but verus died at altinum on the way and marcus had to carry on the war alone he returned to the danube in the same year and remained on the scene of action making carnuntum vindabona or aquincum his headquarters as occasion demanded the operations were for a long time unsuccessful and the romans met with severe defeats 
a special command over Dacia and Upper Mosia had been entrusted to Marcus Claudius Fronto, but he fell in a battle against the Jazyges. Another victim of the war was Marcus Macrinius Vindex, the prefect of the Praetorian Guard. It was not until 172 A.D. that the first decisive success was gained. The Marcomanni sustained a grave defeat, and the emperor assumed the title Germanicus. But in the meantime the Quadi had rebelled, driven out their king, Furtius, the client of the Romans, and elected a new king, Ariogasus, who entered into alliance with the Marcomannic king, Balamar. Marcus set a price of one thousand pieces of gold on the head of Ariogasus. He was soon surrendered to the Romans and sent to the distant city of Alexandria. The curious legend of the Thundering Legion arose in connection with a great victory over the Quadi. A storm seems to have burst over the armies during battle, and while a grateful shower of rain fell upon the Romans, the enemy were disconcerted by thunder and lightning. The event was considered miraculous, and was said to be the answer of heaven to the prayers of a legion consisting of Christians. That some such occurrence did take place is confirmed by a sculpture on the column of Aurelius, but of course at this time there was no such thing as a Christian legion, and the legion Fulminata existed under Augustus. The reduction of the Quadi was soon followed by that of the Jazyges, 175 AD, which was signalized by the emperor's assumption of the name Sarmaticus. Marcus had the insight of a true statesman. He realized the permanent danger which threatened the empire on the northern frontier. He foresaw the barbarian eruptions which were ultimately destined to break up the empire. He perceived clearly that, in order to prevent these perils, it was not enough to gain victories. It was necessary to subjugate the enemy. He saw that Trajan had been right in annexing Dacia. In fact, this Marcomannic War had thoroughly justified Trajan's policy, for the fact that Dacia was in the hands of the Romans had kept the Roxolani and other folks in the eastern Carpathians from joining in the invasion. Marcus decided that it was necessary to go further in the path marked out by Trajan and round off the frontier on this side by annexing the lands of the Jazyges and the Marcomanni. The annexation of Jazygia, the strip between the Danube and the Fice, was indeed obviously expedient. Bohohemum, Bohemia, which the Marcomanni occupied, is so well defended by nature within its mountain and forest walls that it would have proved a useful advanced position against the barbarians. Marcus therefore decided to erect two new provinces, Sarmatia and Marcomania. Sarmatia, at all events, he would probably have formed at once by expelling the Jazyges, but he was obliged to postpone the execution of his plans by an insurrection which broke out in Syria. The terms which, in the meantime, he imposed on the conquered peoples were as follows. They had to contribute contingents to the Roman army. Thus the Jazyges had to furnish 8,000 horsemen. The Marcomanni and Jazyges had to evacuate a strip of land along the Danube ten miles in breadth, afterwards reduced to five miles. And the Quadi and Marcomanni had to receive in their country Roman garrisons to the number of 20,000 men. The conditions of trading were strictly regulated in order to avoid possibilities of collision. About the same time, the tribe of the Astingi entered Dacia and demanded permission to settle there on the condition of military service. But another tribe, the Lacringi, fearing that their own interests might be endangered and incited by the Roman governor of Dacia, attacked the Astingi and destroyed them. 
This incident deserves mention here because it is an early example of the method of keeping enemies in check by stirring up one tribe against another, which the Roman government afterwards developed into a system. The revolt which threatened the throne of Marcus in the east was organized by Avidius Cassius, the able governor of Syria, who had been chiefly instrumental in bringing the Parthian war to a successful issue. When Varus returned to Rome, Cassius had been appointed to a military command, like that which Corbulo had held under Nero, extending beyond his own special province over all the regions adjacent to the eastern frontier. Cassius belonged by birth to this quarter of the empire, being a native of Cyrus, and possessed great influence there. The soldiers seemed to have loved him, although his discipline was strict and even harsh. During the term of his special command, he rendered further services to the government by suppressing a rising in Arabia, and putting down a serious revolt of religious fanatics, who were known as bucolics, in Egypt but he chafed under the rule of the imperial philosopher, and this feeling of dissatisfaction with the administration of Marcus seems to have prevailed in military circles in the East. The officers sneered at the philosophical old woman, who wrote ethical essays in the camp. Varus had warned Marcus against him, but the imperial stoic replied in the spirit of fatalism, "'No prince ever killed his successor,' At length, in 175 A.D., while Marcus was on the Danube waging war against the Marcomanni, Cassius had organized a sufficient party of adherents to declare openly his treasonable designs. He was supported by Flavius Calvisius, the prefect of Egypt. The significance of the movement, as expressed in the manifestos of the pretender, lay in the contrast between the soldier and the philosopher. Cassius was willing to allow that Marcus was a very good man, but complained that, in his devotion to philosophy, he neglected the Republic. The outbreak of the revolt was hastened by the diffusion of a false report that Marcus was dead, and this decided its failure. Avidius was proclaimed imperator and recognized in the belief that the emperor was dead, but when this news proved false, men no longer cared to undertake the usurper's cause, and Cassius was murdered. On learning that the revolt had broken out, Marcus had immediately started for the east, prepared for civil war. He took the precaution of first investing his son Commodus, who was then fifteen years old, with a toga virilis. When Marcus, on arriving in Syria, found the pretender dead, he expressed much distress at being deprived of the pleasure of pardoning him. All who had been concerned in the treason were treated with lenity but the principle was henceforth established that men should not be appointed as governors in their native provinces. The Empress Faustina, who had accompanied her husband in his expedition against the Marcomanni and had received from the army the name Mother of the Camp, Mater Castrorum, accompanied him also to the east, but she died on the journey at Halala in Cappadocia at the foot of Mount Taurus. The Senate decreed her divine honors, and a temple was built to her at the place where she died. Her good name, like that of her mother, was assailed by the breath of slander. She is said to have been openly unfaithful to her husband. It was even whispered that Commodus was the son of a gladiator. The worst aspersion shed upon her fame was that she was privy to, and favored the treasonable design of Cassius, and promised to marry him in case he succeeded but there is positively no evidence against her character that can claim to be seriously considered. Since the death of Lucius Verus, the Roman world had been governed once more by a single ruler. The emperor's two sons, 
L. Aurelius Commodus, born 161 A.D., and Annius Verus, had received the title of Caesar in 166 A.D., and it is probable that, if they had both lived, Marcus would have committed the empire to the joint rule of the two brothers. But Annius the younger died in 170 A.D., and Commodus was the only surviving son of a large family. On the emperor's return to Rome after the revolt of Cassius, he received the title Imperator, shared in his father's triumph, and was designated to the consulate for the following year, notwithstanding his extreme youth. At the same time he received the tribunician power, before December 10, 176, and in 177 AD was raised to hold the same place which L. Verus had held, and be his father's peer, with the title Augustus. Commodus was not indeed of a radically bad nature, but he was utterly weak, devoid of judgment, and self-indulgent. He was a man who could not possibly make a good or even a tolerable ruler. Marcus cannot have been blind to the faults of his son's character, and he has been severely blamed for sacrificing the good of the state to his feelings of paternal affection. His son-in-law Claudius Pompeianus, who had married Lucilla, the widow of Verus, would have been a better choice. On the other hand, if he set aside Commodus, who might naturally consider himself as having a right to succeed, there was the probability of a civil war. The imperial constitution provided no means of avoiding such a necessity of a choice between evils occasionally arising, and it would be difficult to say that of the two evils Marcus did not choose the lesser. In the meantime, the conquered nations on the Danube frontier had violated the peace. Marcus had hardly turned his back when the Quadi and Marcomanni, uneasy under the constraint of the Roman garrisons, determined to take advantage of the revolt of Cassius, and they rebelled. Thus Marcus, when he returned from the east, was forced to begin a second Marcomannic war, just as Trajan had been forced to undertake the second Dacian war. And if he had lived, this too would have been, like Trajan's, a war of extermination. This time Marcus was attended to the scene of war by his son Commodus. It is related that before he left Rome, he conformed to the old custom of hurling a bloody javelin in front of the temple of Bologna. The details of this war, 178 to 180 AD, are unknown. We hear of a great victory gained by a general named Paternus, in consequence of which Marcus was proclaimed imperator for the tenth time. The Marcomanni seem to have been completely subjugated, and the Quadi suffered so severely that they wished to move northward and settle in the land of the Semnones, but were compelled to remain where they were and cultivate the land for the Roman garrisons. The Jazyges seem to have submitted more readily and received favorable terms. The hardest burdens which had been before imposed upon them were abolished, and the important right was conceded to them of passing through Dacia in order to keep up communication with their Sarmatian brethren in the east, the Roxolani. We may conclude that Marcus was on the point of organizing Jazygia as a Roman province, and that Marcomania would soon have been treated in the same way. It was a critical moment. The reduction of an important part of Central Europe under direct Roman sway, which would have had its effect on the future history of those lands, was a matter of a few months. The frontier of the empire was about to be extended to the Elbe, and a design which had fallen through under Augustus well nigh two centuries ago was on the eve of being accomplished. But on March 17, A.D. 180, Marcus Aurelius died in the camp at Vindabona. 
He was not yet sixty years of age, but his body seems to have been exhausted by the fatigues of military life, and he was carried off by fever. His death doomed his plans to disappoint. His worthless son Commodus immediately abandoned the results which had been achieved by his father's statesmanlike resolution and admirable perseverance. Eager to return to Rome and get rid of the war, the young emperor, instead of completing the work of annexation, granted favorable terms to the Marcomanni and the Quadi, and so stultified his father's long campaign. A very important result of these wars of Marcus must be briefly noticed here, though it really belongs to the history of the following century. The system of settling large bodies of Germans and Sarmatians on Roman soil, as military colonae, now regularly began. Marcus, 172 A.D., made such settlements in Pannonia, Macia, Dacia, and Germany. He even attempted to relieve the depopulation of Italy by establishing a barbarian colony near Ravenna, but the settlers tried to seize Ravenna, and the idea was abandoned. Land was assigned to them, and they were free, but their freedom was limited in so far as they were not permitted to leave their lands. They were also bound to perform military service. Thus both the cultivation and the military defense of frontier districts, where such settlements were made, depended upon the same persons. The development of the colonatus to its final form took place during the third century. It is to be carefully observed, however, that this institution did not arise solely from the settlement of foreign captives. The military colonatus was only one form of a system which resulted from the economic conditions of the empire itself. Tenants by contract, who were unable to meet heavy arrears of rent, lapsed into the state of colonai, attached to their landlord's soil by a tie which was practically, though at first not legally, obligatory. It also happened that small proprietors who had failed and become bankrupt voluntarily ceded their ownership to others and took upon themselves the yoke of the colonnade as an improvement in their condition. The beginning of the military colonnade is one of the circumstances which show that in the reign of Marcus Aurelius we stand on the threshold of the decline of the Roman Empire. For the breaking up of the empire was due not only to the invasion of Teutonic nations from without, but also to the presence of a large Teutonic element within. It is also significant that the other great force, which, besides the Teutonic nations, was instrumental in disintegrating the empire and transforming the condition of Europe, namely the Christian religion, appears prominently for the first time in the reign of Marcus, and comes for the first time into serious collision with the state. The end of chapter 28, section 4. Recording by Mark Penfold, Lincoln, Nebraska.